Jacinth Pataki has made it her specialty to discover the relatively unknown women of history whose lives changed the course of empires, whose names have largely been forgotten. Women like Desiree Clary, the first love of Napoleon's life. She might have ended up as Empress if he hadn't have met Josephine, but she went on to found a famous royal house which still exists today. In The Queen's Fortune, Alison's latest book, she tells us the story of this fascinating historical figure. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in today's binge reading episode, Alison talks about the qualities needed for living through turbulent times, whether they're contemporary or historic, and the women who survived them. And on a more personal note, in her own intimate memoir, Beauty in the Broken Places, she catalogues her own journey through rough waters. You'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Alison's books and social media on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Please come by and leave your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from our listeners. But now, here's Alison. Hello there, Alison, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. I'm thrilled to be here. The, the wonders of modern technology. We can be uh, crossing winter to summer across the globe. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And you, I've discovered just in the last few minutes, are in the depths of winter. Tell us what you're experiencing right we now. Yeah, we are in the middle. I'm, I'm in New York. So I'm in upstate New York, about an hour outside of Manhattan. And we are in the middle of an historic snowstorm because really it started two days ago and it has not stopped and it is not showing signs of stopping. So everybody has been completely housebound. Uh, All local leaders have advised everybody to stay off the roads, which is not an issue for us because our car is so buried under snow right now, we can't get anywhere. Uh, and so it's me, my husband, our children, and we're all we're all on day four of uh, solitary confinement together at home. <laughs> and you've had a taste of that this last twelve months with the exactly. pandemic as well. Exactly. So this is a new level, just because we literally can't go outside our front door. Yeah, <laughs> so it's taking it to the extreme in the depths of February wintertime snowy weather. Yeah. Look, you're a New York Times best-selling author who's made a specialty of finding relatively unknown women. You describe them as previously unexplored women and turning them into riveting historical fiction. I just wonder where initially that impulse came from. Thank you. I, I hope it's riveting fiction. That's certainly what I that would be high praise to hear that. That, for me, is the genre that it's really, it's my happy place as a reader and as a writer. I have always loved history. 
And obviously I've always loved reading and literature and, and diving into a great story. And so I truly think that historical fiction for me is, is a perfect blending of those passions and those interests. I feel like historical fiction is a really wonderful way in because it's not only educational, but it's wildly entertaining and transportive. And so for me, what I've noticed myself gravitating towards is historical fiction, as you said, that is really focused on the female perspective. Because if you take my most recent book, just as an example, The Queen's Fortune, while many readers and, and many people in general are familiar with the name Napoleon, and they are most likely somewhat, at least somewhat familiar with the period of history that covers the French Revolution to the Napoleonic Empire, what is less known are some of the female perspectives, the female characters, and some of the female sagas buried within. To me, rather than being less interesting or, or deserving a place as a footnote, I find those interesting, those characters and those histories um, to be the most compelling and juicy and dramatic and interesting of them all. So that's where I, I've gone towards, is going towards these moments in history where we might have some familiarity and some touchstones, but really trying to peel back the layers on a perspective that has not previously been as highlighted and as well known. That's right. And the Queen's Fortune is the story of Desiree Carly, who was the daughter of a wealthy French merchant. She lived through both the French Revolution and Napoleon's rise and fall. She really was Napoleon's first love, if we, well, an important love anyway. And she became Queen of Sweden in the end, and yet we hardly even really have registered that she lived, although she's left an amazing um, heritage, which we'll get onto. But why do you think so little had been written about her? That's exactly right. And that's the question I asked myself every day while I was researching and writing this story. And I consider it my great good fortune that that's the case, that Desiree Clary's name is not as well known. But I agree that she deserves her moment on center stage. And I was thrilled to write The Queen's Fortune with her as my heroine and her as my main subject. And you're exactly right. She, so Desiree Clary was... Napoleon's first love, Napoleon's first fiance. She was a naive young girl and he was an upstart, unknown, penniless Corsican refugee when they had this really torrid love affair during the, the dark days of the French Revolution. They became engaged. And then what happened was Napoleon went off to Paris to try to make a name for himself in this new French government. And she really occupied a higher rung on society's ladder at that point. She came from a higher social status. She had more personal wealth. She had like better connections. And Napoleon really was a, a virtual unknown at that point. But what happened was Napoleon goes to Paris and finds himself kind of at the center of things as the French Revolution is crumbling. He finds his star on this suddenly very, very dramatically upward trajectory. He rises in Parisian society and in Parisian power structures and, and comes into the path of this beautiful, sophisticated, alluring Parisian socialite named Josephine, who obviously we all know will go on to become Napoleon's empress. So, so Napoleon breaks Desiree's heart, breaks it off with her, and takes up with Josephine. But the problem there is that Napoleon's brother and best, best, best friend and advisor and confidant till the end, Joseph, is married at that point already 
to Desiree's sister and best, best, best friend and confidant and constant. And so Desiree is in this awkward situation where the love of her life and her ex-fiance has broken her heart and jilted her and chosen Josephine. Yet she's stuck forever in the inner circle of Napoleon Bonaparte as he rises and rises and rises to ultimately become emperor of much of Europe. And so she's pulled into this imperial power click and into these unbelievable geopolitical circumstances and goes on to live this fascinating life and ultimately, I think, has the last laugh against the man and woman who broke her heart. And as you said, goes on to found a dynasty of her own that still that still reigns to this day. And so here was a woman who was really situated at the center of history. She not only had a front row seat to some of the most dramatic moments in history, but was actively shaping them. And yet, as you said, so few of us know her name and her history is not as well known as these others. Were there many original sources? Did she ever leave anything like letters or journals or? Absolutely. Yes. So, and and I quote some of them directly in the book, the letters that Joseph, uh, that before Josephine came into the picture that Desiree and Napoleon wrote one another. Some of those are direct quotes and then letters that she wrote to her husband and then journals. And then she was a very, very fierce defender of her family's legacy after everybody but she had died, including her husband, who was the king of Sweden. Um, And so she worked very hard to preserve their family memoirs. And then Napoleon was a prolific letter writer. So there is a ton of verbiage in this book that is directly from his own lips as well, or his own pen. Actually, I wondered, you named a French journalist, I I actually did look him up, that she worked with right at the end of her life. Was that actually factual, that bit? Yeah, that's factual. Yeah. Yes. So basically when Napoleon was in exile for the second time on St. Helena, he fl- he knew, he had known his whole life the power of the pen and the power of propaganda and the power of shaping one's own legacy and mythology. And he was compulsively obsessed with shaping his own aura and legend. So he flooded the world with writing uh, from his island exile. And Desiree realized he's going to have the last word on all of this, on me, on my husband, on our our shared history. Uh, And so she really uh, took that cause up as well. Her husband at that point was deceased, um, but she worked with a memoirist to put down their side of the story as well, because Napoleon was writing about Desiree and about her husband, Bernadotte, up until his final days. There was there were a lot of very strong, hard feelings there on both ways. Yeah, it's interesting because Bernadotte was almost, well, Napoleon almost put him up to marry Desiree, didn't he? It yeah. was it was a political yeah. ploy on his part at the beginning, but it turned into a real love match. And you get the feeling that he might have been a bit um, jealous even about the way that Bernadotte and Desiree ended up. Yeah, it becomes this very strange, awkward sort of love triangle because Napoleon basically breaks Desiree's heart and then as a consolation prize throws her off, you know, to one of his top generals to be married to kind of neutralize the situation and then, as you said, Desiree and Bernadotte really do have this love match and this marriage that is so drastically different in both its its dynamics and its results than what Napoleon and Josephine go on to have. And, and then Bernadotte and Napoleon go from being the closest of friends and, and battle buddies, you know, comrades in arms, to being arch rivals and enemies uh, and foils of one another in many ways. And so Desiree is constantly 
in the middle of all these very delicate geopolitical balancing acts. And there are all sorts of awkward dynamics between Desiree and Josephine and Napoleon and Bernadotte and her sister and her brother-in-law. And so that is, of course, what makes for really juicy, dramatic fiction. So I loved all of that. I loved all the drama. There was so much drama in this era with these French power players. But it, it, so it was really fun to dive into and explore. Yes. Look, she certainly was a remarkably strong woman. She was a survivor. But if we played a little bit of what if, if they had married her and Napoleon, do you think she would have had the charisma that Josephine had on the, as Empress? I think she was a totally different sort of personality than Josephine. I think Josephine was very savvy. And, and you, you, you said it correctly. Bo- Desiree was a survivor. Absolutely no question. She had this way of, of identifying the winds of political change and correcting course in order to ride the winds you know, to, to her family's safety and to her own safety. Josephine was also a survivor, literally to the point where she was spared the guillotine within just a matter of hours and almost died during the French Revolution. And just her life was remarkably tumultuous and she really was a survivor as well. But it manifested itself differently in their two very different personalities. And I think Napoleon and Desiree would likely have had a very different sort of marriage than the one he had with Josephine. First of all, I think it would have ended differently because Desiree had a son immediately after she got married. And Napoleon, the only reason he wanted, he had to divorce Josephine ultimately was because she could not bear children and she could not bear him a son. You can't underestimate how impactful that was in his relationship with Josephine. He's trying to found a dynasty and he cannot produce an heir that was an obsession for him, which I think probably wouldn't have been an issue with Desiree just because Desiree was so young and and, had, and you know was able to clearly produce a son. And so that was a huge issue for Napoleon and Josephine as it is in so many royal love stories that we've seen play out over the centuries of history time and again. But also, I think that Desiree was perhaps less ambitious and, and, and perhaps a little bit less cunning or savvy than Josephine. You get the sense when you read Josephine and Napoleon's letters or you hear them speak about one another that they were very much a power couple and that Josephine really was on Napoleon's level in terms of her shrewd ability to seek advantage for herself. I, don't, mm. I didn't ever get the sense that Desiree was quite as power hungry as either of them. And she certainly did not push her husband to seek more and more power and wealth and and title and prestige. And so, so perhaps if we do play that out as a hypothetical, she could have had a very different influence than, than Josephine had. But I will say, I think Desiree in the end was ultimately very grateful that life dealt her the hand specifically that it did and that she did not end up in Josephine's role in spite of the fact that she had been, you know, at first Napoleon's love and fiance. Yes. It's really interesting to me. What did you end up, how did you end up assessing Napoleon? You must have known him just about as well as these two women, I'm sure as well as. What was your final conclusion about Napoleon as a person and as a ruler? 
it reminded me sort of of the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think on his upward climb, he really did do some wonderful things for France, just in terms of the value he placed on he he brought a modernization to the french government and he brought he brought some of the the higher ideals of the french revolution like a more equal society enhanced rights for a greater number of the population to voting ending slavery in the colonies the napoleonic code had some elements that really did move i think french society forward not all positive he certainly did not empower or enfranchise women with his code napoleon but but I think that ultimately it seems, and, and this is what the people who were close to him sort of observed, was that he had this insatiable appetite always for more, 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 and that that was likely his undoing. You know, had he not felt the need to invade Russia, mm. perhaps he would have still had mm. an intact army. Mm. And yeah. really strategically for France, why did he need to invade Russia? You know, so, so so decisions like that, I think, ultimately crippled him and brought about his undoing. We've mentioned that Desiree became Queen of Sweden. And in fact, we've also mentioned that she's had an amazing legacy. Just tell us a little bit about how the House of Sweden was founded and its, oh. its legacy even today. Yes. So it was so interesting because at the time that Napoleon was Emperor of France, Sweden found itself in this unique position where they did not have a hereditary heir for their current king. And they knew that it was geopolitically advantageous for them to align themselves with France, just because at that time with Napoleon at the height of his power, ruling much of Europe, Napoleon was putting his brothers and family members and nephews and sons-in-law on the thrones of Egypt, of Europe, like he was giving out gifts, he'd give out thrones and crowns. And so Sweden saw the benefit to be aligned with this, you know, block of power to the West. And they knew Bernadotte was one of Napoleon's best generals. They had a personal relationship with him just from some of the earlier battle campaigns. He had interacted with high ranking members of the Swedish government and the army. And they knew that in his marriage to Desiree, Bernadotte was in the same family as the Bonapartes, aligned with Desiree as, as Napoleon's sister-in-law. And so they, being a constitutional monarchy, voted to offer the crown to Bernadotte, Desiree's French husband at the time. And Desiree wanted no part of this. She was, as they said, a French woman to the very tips of her fingers. And she did not want to move to Sweden. She did not want to leave her family. She did not want to leave France. But Bernadotte accepted the throne and they founded the House of Bernadotte. And what is so interesting is they had their son, Oscar, who reigned after Bernadotte. And that line then became firmly established and continues to this day. And the next ruler of Sweden will be a queen. The current king has an eldest daughter, Victoria. And... The Swedish royal family is awesome because they're very progressive and they're very modern and they actually did away with just this, the principle of male rule. So even before the English royals did this, they made it that the eldest is the ruler, the next ruler, not the eldest boy. So she has a brother, but Victoria is still the first in line to the throne. So she has two middle names. One is Desiree and one is Josephine. 
Oh, wow. And that is very intriguing, right? Because these are the two women who were united together uh, forever entangled in their in their rivalry and their love for Napoleon. But I'm not going to explain more than that. I'm not going to give anything away because I don't want to be a spoiler for anybody who hasn't read to the end of the book. But let's just say that she's named after Desiree and Josephine that we know from this story, the same two women, and why Desiree and Josephine are still entangled and still overlapping today in the ruling house of Sweden is a very intriguing, juicy historical fact that really you could not make up. It's it's just too good to be true. But their legacies are forever interwoven. And and I, I just thought that that was an incredible plot twist in the historical record when I when I came to that. Yeah, look, it's remarkable. Look, let's just uh, talk a little bit about two of your earlier books, you, The Accidental Wife and Cece. They both relate to the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the 19th century. And they're an empress who was drawn from a supporting role and left to rule alone. I understand that you've got family connections with this part of the world that initially drew you to her story. Yes, yes. So Empress Sisi, the last great empress of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the last great leading lady of the Habsburg family who ruled much of Europe for centuries. She's another one whose name is not as well known. Mm. And yet her story and the and the historical facts of her life are just so fascinating and compelling and worthy. So when I came upon her story, I was I was traveling throughout Hungary because my family is Hungarian, American, among other things. Pataki is a Hungarian name. And so we were we were back in Hungary for a family visit. And I just kept seeing these beautiful images of this young lady everywhere we went. And I'm not exaggerating, on bars of soap, on napkins, on plates, on the walls, in every gift shop. Finally, we're eating dinner and this portrait of this lady is hanging over our table in a restaurant. And I asked the waiter, I said, who is this woman that I see everywhere? Because she had this very quizzical, intriguing smile and this beautiful, thick brown hair. And and she looked certainly, you know, very regal. And they said, oh, that is Cece. That was our most beloved empress. And I, I gathered from just the initial little digging that I did into her life that she She was sort of almost like their Princess Diana, just so beloved, the people's princess. And I just discovered these really, really delicious morsels about her history, like, you know, her family's connection to World War I, her family's connection to all this great art and music like Strauss and Liszt and Gustav Klimt and the golden age of the Habsburg court and Mad King Ludwig, who we in America know, we know it as the Walt Disney castle, but he built um, Neuschwanstein. He was, he was one of her, you know, close supporting characters as well. And so I just discovered these little historical tidbits about her. And I just, the more I learned, the more I wanted to dig into her story and learn more. And so she was another one of these figures where, as you said in the earlier in our conversation, I just, I thought, gosh, that is a moment in history and a figure in history whose story really deserves to be put on center stage for for people to just read about and become engrossed in as I was engrossed in it. Her marriage was slightly different. It wasn't a normal sort of romance, was it? Absolutely. These royals and their arranged marriages, you you wonder why things go awry so wrong, but not really. So she was never supposed to be 
the empress of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that's why the, the book is titled The Accidental Empress, because what happened was Emperor Franz Joseph is the most eligible young bachelor in all of Europe. He's the emperor of Austria. His kingdom extends across much of Europe. And he was engaged and intended to be married to Cece's older sister, Helene. And so Cece travels to the court to support her elder sister and to play the supporting role in helping her sister you know, meet the emperor and meet her intended husband. And Cece arrives at the emperor's court and she is this guileless, free-spirited, tomboy, beautiful young 15-year-old with her thick chestnut hair in these whimsical braids around her face. And she arrives and completely unwittingly captures the heart of the emperor, Franz Joseph. And Franz Joseph sees his intended, the big sister, and then sees Cece, the sort of, whimsical, free-spirited younger sister, and it was love at first sight, or it was lust at first sight, however you want to say it. But he said, no, actually, I want to marry the younger one. And in making this decision, he goes against his most powerful advisor, who had arranged the marriage with the big sister. And that's the only time really he bucks this advisor and that advisor happens to be his mother. So as you can imagine, this doesn't put 15-year-old Cece off on the best track to enter the imperial household as the empress. And it's and it's a role, quite frankly, she's completely unprepared for and completely constitutionally suited for. And so the, as you said, the marriage was not always the smoothest one. And you can imagine the, disaster, the disastrous consequences that could evolve from such a situation. But it certainly makes for, again, really, a really compelling human saga. And she was a fascinating, larger-than-life figure. Before we leave talking about your books, I do want to go to your very poignant non-fiction memoir, Beauty in the Broken Places. You went through a remarkable journey, a very, very deep and dark time when your young husband, who was a high-performing doctor, suffered a rare and devastating brain injury, didn't he? Yeah. Just a, sitting on an aeroplane and had a stroke. Yeah. Now, you turned this into a lovely book, Beauty in the Broken Places, which started out as letters to Dave so that yeah. he would be able, if, if and when he ever, quotes, woke up, he'd, he'd have an idea of what had been happening. Tell us about how that all came together. Yeah, that's exactly right. We were we were 30, we were expecting our first child and we were taking a trip on an airplane for what we call our baby moon. Our last trip before we gave birth to this baby and life changed. And my husband, who, as you said, was a healthy surgeon, lifelong athlete, never smoked, ate annoyingly healthy food, he just, he turned to me on the plane and he said, does my right eye look weird? And his right eye looked incredibly weird. The pupil, the black had taken over his entire eye and it was just the right eye. And it was very, very disconcerting. And I just threw out the most outlandish thing I could think of thinking that he, you know, the doctor who sees gunshot wounds would say, oh no, no, calm down. You're, you're overreacting. But I just said, Dave, are you having a stroke? And he said, I think I might be. And then a few minutes later, he closed his eyes and lost consciousness. And, and so at that point, we didn't know if he would survive. We didn't know if he would wake up. He was in a coma. And ultimately what happened is when he did wake up, he woke up in a state of complete amnesia. And he couldn't remember anything. And he certainly couldn't make memories from, from day to day. And so as you said, you know, I didn't 
Dave wasn't there. Dave woke up, but that wasn't the Dave that had gone to sleep. That wasn't my husband. That wasn't the father of this baby that was coming. And so as a way to sort of process and try to make sense and also in the hopes that maybe someday Dave would be with it enough to ask about everything that we were going through, I I wrote him letters. I wrote him daily letters. And I never intended for it to turn into anything. At that point, I was writing fiction and writing was my happy place and my career you know, was in historical fiction and it gave me joy and nothing about these letters to Dave were associated with joy or, or my career. But about a year after the fact, when we had gone through this excruciating, but also inspiring day by day battle to regain Dave's mind and his health and to regain our family and to welcome, you know, the birth of our daughter and all these monumental things that we had gone through together, some of which Dave remembered, some of which Dave did not. I had this year's worth of writing. And I realized that that had basically been how I had been processing for a year. And and concurrent with that, we had received all of this writing and all of this language from people who had flooded us with cards and prayers and notes and letters and memories of Dave. And I had put all that together in this book, in this one big document that I called Dave's Book of Fan Mail. And I thought, oh gosh, wouldn't it be so great if someday Dave could read all of this and process this and understand who he was and what he meant to all of these people and almost sort of like attending your own funeral and hearing hundreds of different eulogies, but then being able to live with that information and move forward with it incorporating that into just how you approach your daily life. So it turned into this project that I never really expected to do and never really wanted to do, but ultimately ended up being probably more meaningful and significant than anything I've worked on. And, and just the way it has allowed me to continue to connect with others. Because what I, what I really needed when I was going through sort of the darkest moments of our own crisis was to know that I was not alone And to know that I was not the only person who was going through what I was going through. And so that was sort of my hope was that this book could potentially be an offering to others who feel that same way. To know that they're not walking that road alone. And it really has allowed me to connect with readers in a whole different way that that means a lot to both Dave and to me. I'm sure the feedback that you've got has told you that that is very much the case. And that and that was the only reason I I agreed to do it. As I said, you know, if this if this can mean to one person, you know, what I needed in my darkest moments, then it will have been worth it. Yes. And so so it just allows it allows for connection with readers and with others in a way that just is different than fiction, you know, very powerful. Yeah. You quote from a priest towards the very end of the book. You say, you've come to an understanding of the statement, choose to be in your life, to be in your marriage every single day. And the assumption is there, whatever that day might bring, that you choose to be in it. That's a very big ask for some people, but and it's a huge wise lesson to have learned at a very young age, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, everything about that day when you get married, when you take your vows and you say for better, for worse, and sickness and health, you say it and you mean it, but it's very theoretical. 
And then to have really learned what it meant and to realize, okay, now it's being called in and now I'm being expected to live this, live out these words, you know, on the, on the near side of 30. N- not something you necessarily would expect, but, but it is true because, and I even, I even have to remind myself of this every single day, you know, all of us at some point will enter the club of the bad thing where something we didn't wish for or ask for or expect is dropped on us. Uh, and some of us enter it sooner than others. And some of us enter it probably in a way that's more jarring or painful than others, but inevitably every single one of us will, will have that moment. And once you have joined that club, you realize what is truly precious and the flip side, what is not <laughs> worth feeling, you know, the heartache or the frustration that, that maybe previously you would have allowed yourself to engage in. And I think it's just a big time of taking measure and taking stock. And I think it's probably something that everyone in the world has experienced in the past year, just living through a global pandemic, where life is just sort of simplified to what you, what you can see day by day. And, you know, it's everything from just not carrying grudges to telling people how you really feel about them, telling, cherishing the time that you have with loved ones, knowing that truly every day is a possibility that, that everything could change forever, that that possibility is always there. And it's easier said than done. And some days it's easier to do than others. But I just think it's the sort of thing that once you learn it and, and, even, you know, potentially and probably in a traumatic way, you can't unknow it. Um, and you can't, you can't unsee that perspective. And, and I think it just informs then the way that you live your life and the way that you see your relationships and in the way you prioritize your health and your moments and, and your choices and your energy and, and your priorities. Now you've very much moved on from that. You've, uh, you've added to your family. And I think, you are about to do that again. So tell us a little bit about life today. Yeah, yeah. So so a few months after Dave's stroke, we gave birth to our daughter, Lily, who was just a joy for both of us in that time. And, and I really think was the light that pulled us forward. And there were many days when I didn't know if Lily would ever know her father and if he would ever be there to see her grow. And, and he has, and it's it feels miraculous and wonderful. And so then... You know, I never thought we'd be able to expand our family beyond that. But then when we were able to have a second child, we welcomed another daughter and we named her Grace because it was truly an act of grace. And so we have our two daughters and and Dave is healthy and he prioritizes, you know, getting exercise. And we, we all are just trying to stay healthy and we are really grateful. And we still do sometimes truly just sit and take stock and cry tears of joy that, that we're here together living yes. this life together yeah. because we know how easily it could have gone the other direction. Yeah. Look, moving just into talking about your wider career as a writer, this one question that I always do like to ask, and that is, is there one thing that you think you've done more than any other that's helped to make you a successful historical fiction writer? Honestly, I think that it's... The choice of who you enter into relationships with as you are building your career, because I can write the book, but I 
I'm not an editor. I'm not a literary agent. I am not a publisher. And so I think the single best thing I've done that I'm grateful for in, in the trajectory of my career is having been able to sync up with my literary agent and being able to sync up with my editor. I just love them both. They are strong women. They believe in these female characters I'm working on. They support me. And it really is, you know, when you're choosing your literary agent and then choosing your editor, an analogy that that I can't help but make is it, it really is a marriage in the sense of like you're partnering to bring this book to fruition. And so if you're not on the same page, it's same page, pun intended. It really could be very, very difficult. And so I think I think the single best thing that I give credit to in my career is, is being paired with my literary agent and my editor. That just means so much to me. Yeah. Not, nothing that I do would turn into anything without the two of them. We are coming to the end of our time together, but before we part, I do want to ask you about your reading taste because this is the joys of binge reading. I think you probably have been a passionate reader your whole life. I would pick that. What do you like to read and what would you recommend to others in not so much in literary fiction, but in fiction that's entertaining or gives light relief? Yes. So I love to read every genre and I love variety. And I, you know, as I said, my true love and my natural propensities towards historical fiction. So right now I'm reading Hamnet. I just started by Maggie O'Farrell about Shakespeare's son who passed away just a few years before he wrote Hamlet. Uh, And so that one's been fascinating. I love Kathleen Rooney. She has written um, two books that I've really loved. Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk and Share Me and Major Whittlesey. I've loved both her books. I've just thought they were both delightful excursions into fiction. I just finished The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, which I really enjoyed. I love memoir. I love Danny Shapiro in writing memoir. And then I love everything across the fiction from Philippa Gregory to Hilary Mantel to Christina Baker Klein. She just wrote a beautiful book, The Exiles, um, which takes place in Australia. And I love her writing. I love Martha Hall Kelly. She wrote Lilac Girls. And oh gosh, yeah, I I could go on and on. And then I love, you know, the classics. I was an English major truly because my first love started with some of the classics like Jane Austen. And I loved, you know, having the opportunity in school to study all of the histories and tragedies and comedies and romances of Shakespeare. And then I love some of the biography too. Like I love anything pretty much by David McCullough. So I try to, and then, you know, with my five-year-old and my two-year-old, I'm I'm steeped all day, every day in the world of children's books. And I love Sandra Boynton. I love Margaret Weiss Brown. I love Eric Litwin. I love Kenneth Graham. So so I'm a little bit of everything. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Look, looking back over the years, if you were doing it all over again in terms of your writing career, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Oh, man. Uh, some of my first manuscripts that are sitting in drawers unpublished are just horrible. I would have <laughs> apologized to my early readers before I gave, pawned them off on them. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I think also some of the, maybe just not putting so much pressure. You know, I, I, I always come back to the quote, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. 
And my editor once, or my agent once had to give me a talking to, you know, you're never, ever going to write the perfect book. You're going to read your finished book five years after it's published when it's way too late to make any changes. And you're going to find hundred things that you wish you could take a red pencil to. And so I think, you know, it's, it's in a lot of us, it's in our nature to be perennially editing and finding fault. And just, I would say, I, I guess it would be more advice. Just remember to to keep the joy in the writing. Remember to uh, come back to what it all started as, which is the joy of storytelling and the joy of imagination and creating. And it's really a gift if you are able to do that every day and call it a job. So just always remember that. And, and as a reader, you know, you what you want is a great story. You want to be transported. And so just to remember as the writer that, that that's what you're, you're doing it for the reader and you're doing it for the story. And so keep the joy alive. Yeah, that's lovely. Look, looking over your next 12 months, projecting out, what do you have yeah. on your plate or on your desk that you're working yes, on? Yes, I am on copy edits, which is one of the final stages in the editorial process for my next book, which is another fascinating, juicy, lush historical saga based upon a woman. Likely her name is not as well known as some of the male counterparts of her era, but her name was Marjorie Merriweather Post. And if you don't know her name, I love that. That's I love starting from that place. But it's going to be a novel, a historical novel uh, centered around this woman who changed the world, truly. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic and exaggerating there. She Im- impacted all of our lives, Marjorie Merriweather Post. And, and the book is loosely titled right now, The Magnificent Lives of Marjorie Post. And it will come out a year from now in February of 2022. And I just cannot wait to tell her story. It will be coming back to America for this one. I've been in France for my last book. This is an American heiress and American power player in history and it's a really juicy dramatic story her life the name rings a bell and I associate it with press and media is that am I on the right track well uh, she certainly spent a lot of time splashed across all of the press and media she herself was not a reporter you you could know her name for any number of reasons she she built Mar-a-Lago which is now obviously Donald Trump's winter white house or it was Donald Trump's winter white house but she before the trumps ever occupied it that was one of her many fabulous homes but and she also she changed the way we all eat all of our food the way we all live she gave us a, if you know post is a very famous company with its name on a lot of boxes and brands and so she she but she had her hand in a lot of things and she's an inspiring fascinating, strong, romantic woman with a really great long life story. Sounds wonderful. Look, do you enjoy hearing from your readers? And if so, where can they find you online? Absolutely. I love hearing from readers. That's the best part of the job. I'm on all social media. So my name, Allison Pataki. So Allison with two L's, Pataki, P-A-T-A-K-I. So I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. And then on my website, allisonpataki.com, which again is just my name, Allison with two L's, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, Pataki, P-A-T-A-K-I.com. There are ways to connect there and for people to submit notes and messages and where I share all my latest news and my newsletters. 
That's wonderful. And in the show notes, which we publish with this as a transcript of the chat, we will include links to all of those um, sites as well, Alison. So, look, thank you so much for your time today. We have actually run over a little bit because you're so fascinating. And I have lots of other things that it would have been fun to talk about. But next time, all the very best with your future. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jenny. Next time, I want to come to New Zealand so we can do it in person. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. And thank you, everyone. Enjoy your reading. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.